Tonight, the voice to Parliament and the return of institutional racism. I'll be joined by Stephen Chavora to discuss why race must never be part of the Australian Constitution and why even well-meaning discrimination is wrong. And I'll be talking about the government agency that wants to become our Ministry of Truth and the fear campaign behind the call for government censorship on the internet. My name's Nick Cater, the presenter of Battleground on ADHTV, the fastest growing alternative media platform in the Southern Hemisphere. And this show streams every Thursday at 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time and is available anytime to stream on the web or better still via the ADHTV app available on your smartphone or smart TV. Well, the cultural cringe is back. The fear that the voice referendum will fail has triggered a sharp burst of cultural anxiety amongst commentators and politicians who seem to imagine that the rest of humanity is nothing better to do than to look down disdainfully upon Australia. Quote, the eyes of the world are upon us, wrote Troy Brampton in the Australian last week as he dipped his nib into a well of cliches. History is calling on us. It is a test for all Australians. We must not fail. Well, older viewers will immediately identify Bramston's condition as cultural cringe. It was a term coined by Arthur Angle Phillips in a 1950 essay, which noted an intellectual tendency to make unflattering comparisons between Europe and Australia. Educated Australians shocked by the crudeness of their own country would pause as if asking the question, yes, but what would a cultivated Englishman think of this? Well, with the chances of the yes case in the voice referendum receding by the day, the elites have commandeered the cringe to use it as a weapon to beat the brows of those contemplating voting no. Nine months ago, they took heart from the polling that indicated that the proposal would win in a woke slide. However, the more we learn about this proposal, the less we like it. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese seemed to have a, a flutter of the cultural cringe a few weeks ago when he spoke on a Sunday morning television interview in Sky, on Sky. He said, The Voice will send a signal to ourselves and the world that we're a mature nation that is coming to terms with the fullness of our history. He said, It will make us feel better about who we are as a nation. Well, Albanese's argument was perfectly pitched to support, cement the support of the hand-wringing elites who were already on board, but it was strikingly out of key However, with the sentiments of most Australians who already feel pretty positive about their nation. They would agree with uh, Barry McKenzie's memorable declaration that we live in the best bloody country in the world, no worries. Not every Australian, it turns out, is bent double with colonial guilt. Least of all the 30% or so of citizens who were born overseas. They, after all, have voted with their airline tickets in deciding to come here to Australia rather than, say, Venezuela. Far from damaging Australia's reputation, I think a redounding rejection of the voice can only enhance it. It'll start repairing the damage done to our national image during the fright-demic of COVID. That was when commentators like Tucker Carlson in the United States seemed perplexed about the docile acceptance in Australia of some of the world's harshest lockdown measures. Quote, when Americans think of Australia, they imagine a freer, tougher version of themselves, Tucker said. Steve Irwin, Crocodile Dundee, that kind of thing. The modern reality is a little different from what we imagine. 
Well, a resounding no vote, no vote in the face of this chorus of hectoring from the political media and corporate elite will tell the world that our egalitarian independent spirit has not been extinguished. A strong re rejection of the vote will be an expression of confidence. It'll be an endorsement of our colorblind constitution and the courage not to cringe, but to swagger. The referendum on the voice to parliament may be as close as three months away. Uh, one thing's already clear, whatever the result, this certainly won't be the unifying national moment the Prime Minister hoped it would be. As we record this, the polling suggests, the latest news polling suggests that the result is split 47-43 in favour of the no vote. And the issue is just about as polarising as anything I've encountered. I've made my position clear. I'll continue to argue forcefully that this change to the Constitution is damaging, divisive, and against the spirit of the liberal egalitarian democratic nation that I was proud to join as a citizen over 30 years ago. Others of good faith and intelligence take a different view. As with the same-sex marriage debate, most of us find we're on different sides of the argument with people we count as friends or relatives. Dr Stephen Javora is a lecturer in European and Australian history at Campion College and the co-author of The Forgotten Menzies. The, uh, the world of Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. He's opposed to the voice like me, but as a man of Christian faith, he feels compelled to argue his position respectfully, which is an impressive feat and a lesson to us all perhaps in an era when so much of the discussion around us is intemperate and intolerant. Stephen, welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me on the show, Nick. You, like me, uh, you, you've, you've taken this issue on and found yourself at odds with good people. In a recent article for the ABC, and let's have it out there, we'll give them the plug. The ABC, you published a piece where you argued against the position of Dr. Michael Jensen, a man we both respect, mm. uh, but somebody who is in favour of The Voice. I think the first point you made was that it's wrong to conflate the recognition of indigenous people in the constitution with the voice itself. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, there are sort of two issues at play here. Um, one is uh, whether indigenous Australians should be recognized uh, in the constitution. And second, whether the constitution itself needs to be changed to incorporate this sort of mechanism of the voice to parliament. And, and, and from what I could see in uh, Reverend Dr. Jensen's article, and I hear this all the time in, in, in yes voters, is that they often conflate the two. They say, well, we need a voice so that they're recognized in the constitution. Well, well no, they can actually be recognized with a reference in the preamble um, without actually requiring a, a voice. And for example, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott is an advocate of that, of having a reference to Indigenous Australians in the preamble. Uh, so they're recognised in the Constitution, but not having this, uh, as you say, and I agree, this divisive um, voice um, addition to the Constitution. I think, you know, having thought this through long and hard, the thing which really jars with me is the idea of giving special rights to a certain group of people on the basis, let's face it, of their race. The, the 1967 referendum did quite the opposite. It, it, it actually removed the last vestiges of institutionalised discrimination. You know, it made the, the constitution became effectively colourblind, except for one thing, which was probably a mistake 
in hindsight in that it, it continued to give the government permission to make special rules in, that would benefit Aboriginal people. So it couldn't discriminate against, but it could benefit in favour. Yeah. Uh, the trouble with this proposal is that it goes much, much further in, in conferring huge benefits upon Indigenous people that uh, the rest of Australians, other Australians won't have, particularly in view, you know, particularly in, in their influence in the democratic process. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this brings race in, in the const, into the constitution in a, in a very radical way. It defines sort of two kinds of Australians, uh, Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians. And that Def, that distinction between two kinds of Australians is enshrined in the Constitution. And over time, that is just going to lead to continual uh, division uh, between the two groups of people. Um, we really ought to be aspiring to sort of no racial divisions uh, between Australians as Australians. But in actual fact, this will embed it within the Constitution. And it also is by definition uh, political rights awarded to people on the basis of race. So again, you know, Reverend Dr. Jensen said that this does not create special rights based on race. Well, of course it does. The whole voice to parliament itself is nothing but an institution made up of rights that are possessed solely by those who identify as Indigenous Australians. And what that also means is that imposes duties on others uh, to have to recognise those particular rights, duties on non-Indigenous Australians and, and the Parliament. Uh, so it, it is very much enshrining uh, not just racial distinctions, and I would actually say over time in reality racial divisions in the Constitution, um, but also enshrining race-based race rights. That is exactly what the voice to Parliament is. And yet, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very firmly of the belief that the Constitution should be colourblind. That's an expression that's often used in the United States. Uh, and that's important because, you know, to be a citizen of this country, it just, just puts you on the same level as everybody else. You have the same uh, rights and the same duties as everybody else. And whether you've just become an Australian citizen, uh, you know, the ink is barely dry on, on your certificate, you are imbued with the same rights as somebody who can trace their ancestry back 60,000 years. That seems to be fundamental to our unity as a nation and, and, and our expectations of how we should behave to others and how they should behave to us. Absolutely. And like annually right now, we're spending $39 billion um, in aid on Indigenous Australians. And you have to wonder how much of that money is going to uh, Indigenous Australians who actually don't really need it. It's sort of becoming a form of middle class welfare. But that's exactly what happens when you base aid and welfare on a racial criterion uh, rather than a criterion of need. What you wind up with is people who don't actually need the aid um, being able to access it simply because they are Indigenous Australian. And of course, what that means is that those Indigenous Australians that really, really do need it, well, then there's less to go to them. Because again, we're basing uh, the eligibility not on actual need, but on racial identity. It is simply no way to uh, administer services and, and run any kind of public policy.
Well, that's an important point. So let, let's go over that again, just to emphasize that. So yeah, I mean, it's part of, part of uh, the way we are in this country that we believe that the government should come to the assistance of those with no other means of, of, of being helped. You know, the people who just can't cope with the friction of everyday life. It, it is our duty as citizens to come to their, their aid and we do this through means of the government. But we have to do it surely on the basis of their actual need. And just because, uh, you know, we find that statistically as a group, indigenous people overall uh, have worse uh, expectations or worth, worst experiences in health, education, employment, and so forth than others, doesn't mean to say that they're all in that position, does it? And in fact, we, we should deal with them as people, surely, not as groups of people, which is the problem with identity politics. Oh, absolutely. Now, estimates in terms of how many Indigenous Australians are faring roughly on par with non-Indigenous Australians are around about 80%. So Gary Johns, in his recent book, The Burden of Culture, which is a fantastic book, uh, based on studies, he, he, he shows that it's probably about 80% of Indigenous Australians who are basically doing okay uh, in sort of modern society. It's 20% uh, the, the ones that are doing really, really badly. Now, the problem is those identifying as Indigenous Australians seems to be climbing up every year. Um, we've gone from a period sort of in the early 20th, uh, in the early 20th century when we thought that they would die out uh, now to a point where in actual fact, if you know, the current uh, trajectory continues, I think within about a generation, about a million people will identify as Indigenous Australian. Now, who are these people identifying as Indigenous Australian? Well, they're not people out in remote, sort of the, the ones who are the, the new people identifying. They're not necessarily people out in remote regions, uh, you know, living lives of, of, um, of need. They're often very, they're very often middle-class urban dwelling people who discover some indigeneity in their DNA. Uh, and then they start identifying as Indigenous Australians. And of course, they're able to um, receive a, a lot of the benefits. Um, that is just no way to uh, distribute welfare in any country. It should be available based on need, um, regardless of race, uh, not based on race, regardless of need. And, and a lot of indigenous leaders, people like Noel Pearce and Galore Unipingu, a few years back were making this very point that if we describe, you know, say the, the family violence, alcoholism, etc., in which occurs far too often in indigenous communities, remote indigenous communities, if we call that an indigenous problem, rather than a social problem or a health problem or an education problem, then we're, we're disrespecting Aboriginal people. We're saying they're not up to the standards of everybody else, which is a very opposite of what we believe, right? So just purely on the grounds of giving equal respect to Indigenous people, it's essential we say that they're not somehow sort of destined to do this. You know, it's not a sort of predestined thing that Indigenous people will suffer these kind of disadvantages. No, of course not. And, and statistically, again, they, they, they don't. At least the overwhelming majority of them don't seem to. But 
a huge minority of them do. And what we actually need to be doing is trying to figure out exactly why that maybe 20% of Indigenous Australians are faring so badly in life outcomes such as employment, uh, income, health outcomes, um, education, uh, domestic violence, incarceration. And it can't just all be put down to racism because if Australia was as racist as uh, some of the uh, activists say, then you wouldn't have that 80% of Indigenous Australians doing basically okay. And if Australia was as racist as many people, like say someone like Lydia Thorpe, uh, would say, then you wouldn't have people falling over themselves to identify as Indigenous Australians. Who would do that in a country? <laughs> Who would identify uh, when they didn't have to with a race in a country that they knew was going to be sort of vilified and oppressed? It, it makes no sense. Australia is not a very racist country, relatively speaking. All countries have elements of racism, Australia included. I would actually say globally, Australia is probably one of the least racist countries in the world. Um, uh, but again, uh, you're quite right. We don't want to suggest that sort of because a community or because an individual is indigenous, that therefore they're going to suffer from these sorts of uh, social maladies. And yet there is still the problem that, again, very quite regional indigenous communities in particular have shocking rates of domestic violence and sexual abuse and fatherlessness and, and alcoholism. And, and these are the things that need to be tackled. And you know, as I'm sure we'll discuss, uh, there is really no good reason, Nick, to think that The Voice is going to be able to tackle these any more successfully uh, than those who are actually pushing for The Voice have been able to tackle in the past. Well, let's go, go again to the, the false logic, the false reasoning that's offered. So uh, life expectancy uh, for Indigenous people is, is lower than for non-Indigenous people. And if you separate out those people we've spoken of in the region and regional and remote communities, life expectancy is considerably lower than for say the population of Sydney. Uh, and it, the explanation is often offered that this is because of you know, the long-term effects of prejudice, of racism, of colonialism. But, but how about this for at least a partial explanation? Smoking rates are much higher in indigenous people, I think in the 40% mark, whereas in the general population now it's down to the low teens. You know, the, the, the campaign against smoking, the putting up of cigarette prices and so forth has not had the same effect on indigenous peoples. It has for some reason they've not been as responsive to that message as the rest of us. But surely if you're looking at life expectancy, a difference in the rate of smoking of that degree, you'd have to say that that is at least part of the problem. And why don't we focus on that? Oh, absolutely. And, 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 and look, not just smoking. I mean, again, sort of alcoholism is, is a terrible um, blight on many of these communities. And, and, and you're quite right, you know, and, and, and others have made this point. Uh, it does no good trying to causally explain these maladies by way of events that happened 200 years ago or even events that happened 70 years ago so by sort of, sort of blaming colonialism, uh, blaming the stolen generations. I mean, the, these things obviously had very terrible outcomes in some respects. Um, but the, the fact remains is that there are far more immediate causes of these things 
And the good news is that the very immediate causes are much more under our control than the alleged causes that happened over 200 years ago and or, you know, 70 years ago or 50 years ago and things like that. Um, but there just seems to be I think part of the problem is, Nick, and, and humans have a propensity to do this. If we find that we can't either find the cause of a problem or we find the cause of a problem, but it's really, really tricky to fix rather than just say we don't know what to do. What we do is we invent causes that um, that we sort of think that we can fix or we invent other causes so we can say that, you know, uh, we figured out what the problem is. And and I think that's largely what's happening when people say it's colonialism or it's or it's generational trauma, uh, you know, rather than things that are just far more obvious. Yeah, like smoking, uh, like drinking and, and then a, a broader problem, just sheer regionality. Uh, me, many of the worst affected indigenous Australians living hundreds of kilometres away from hubs where they can easily get medical attention and things like that. And, and the obvious thing to do, and, and people like Anthony Dillon have said this, Gary Johns has said this, Peter Sutton has said this, is the obvious thing to do is to try to encourage Indigenous Australians to come out of those very regional areas and into the areas where there are jobs, where there, um, where there uh, is medical attention for them that's much easier to get. But political correctness says, no, 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 that's taking them off country and things like that. And so we're left in this situation where we kind of know what the problems are and we kind of know what we could do to help. But no one wants to say we should do it. And so what do you do? Well, you're not going to say we can't do anything because, hey, maybe your job as someone in the Aboriginal industry depends on people thinking you can do something. So what do you do? You concoct something that isn't really going to help at all, but, but you try to convince everything that everyone that will. You concoct this thing called a voice to parliament. We should, we should be waking up to this, shouldn't we, Stephen? The, the, the single cause solution to complex and entrenched problems. I mean, we see it in climate science. Yep. We saw it during the pandemic. Just go this one course and it'll fix everything. Even before we've read the fine print, we know that's not going to be true in any field and certainly not in one as complex as, as one concerning human beings. Oh, absolutely. And particularly one that is very bound up with with culture. And and this is another this is another problem that, uh, again, we, we sort of we talk about closing the gap. And what do we mean by closing the gap? We mean closing the gap of disparities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians when it comes to things like health, health outcomes, uh, prosperity, education and, and, and incarceration and things like that. But no one wants to talk about what has to be done to close the gap. And anyone who thinks about it for more than half a second has to admit that closing the gap means integrating Indigenous Australians into mainstream Australian culture. That is the only way you are going to close the gap because the lifestyles, the prosperity, the, the health, the, 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 um, the education that we enjoy today, Nick, as you well know, it is the product 
of a culture that has evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years of technology, ways of thinking about economics, ways of thinking about time, ways of thinking about our commitments to friends and family, our commitments to work. It all is part of, of, of Western culture. And as long as Indigenous Australians are being taught to hate Western culture, to see it as colonizing and to sort of seek strength in their own culture, in actual fact, this is going to prevent Indigenous Australians from being able to integrate into mainstream culture and thereby close the gap. So again, we kind of know a lot of the things that need to be done, but no one wants to say them. And this voice is definitely not going to say them. This voice is just going to entrench a sense of of division, a sense that uh, to, to, to improve the life of in, lives of Indigenous Australians, they need to just retreat more into their own culture. It's going to be a disaster, which again, is, as a Christian, is one, of the, is one of the reasons I say that in terms of loving our, our Indigenous neighbours, we've got to vote no to this. It's really bad for them. Well put, well put and courageously put, if I may say so, Stephen. But look, you, you've bitten the bullet. Let, let's both do it. The word integration, yeah. uh, it's considered only slightly less offensive than the word assimilation these days, both of which it seems to me have been grievously misinterpreted. But as Nigel Bigger uh, told me on this program a few weeks ago, he's written a, a fantastic book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. He made the point that when a settler society comes into conflict with an indigenous uh, people who've been here before, is only one of three things can happen. One is that one group annihilates the other. The second is that they set up an arrangement of separate development. You live over there, do get on with your business, we'll live over here. The third is assimilation. Well, we'll, we'll form a society in which we're all citizens, uh, which we all have equal respect, equal opportunity, and let's all be whatever our culture. We have one thing in common in that we are, in this case, Australians, and this is the way the British colonies were run in places like Canada, uh, United States, I guess, before they, uh, they, they ran off, <laughs> New Zealand, South Africa, an assimilation model. And it's worked very well. It's been to the great benefit of mm, the vast majority of Aboriginal people who, as you say, prosper as much uh, equally with, with the rest of the population. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a sense in which, yeah, we know what works. And all you have to do to see what works is to look at the most articulate and successful Indigenous Australians and ask yourself to what extent have they integrated into mainstream Australian society? And the answer, generally speaking, is 100 you percent. Know, the Indigenous Australians who are most successful, many of whom are the ones um, voicing approval for this voice to parliament and things like that. Um, even those who seem to despise Australia, like Lydia Thorpe, uh, they're very successful. They're healthy. Uh, they're educated. Um, they're employed. How did they do it? Well, they did it because they learned English well. Uh, they did it because they imbibed the work ethic. Lydia Thorpe would be the exception in that respect, but, <laughs> but they imbibed the work ethic of, a, of, a, of Western civilization. Uh, they think about 
time in the same way that we do. So, for example, you turn. I mean, in the West, our economy, Nick, as you'll appreciate, is very punitive when it comes to turning up on time. Yeah. You, know, you turn up on time or you lose your job or you lose mark. Now, that is something that's a little looser when you go. My wife and I spent three months in the Mediterranean. My wife's of Greek extraction. And she will she will tell you that Greeks don't think quite the same way about time. You know, they tend to prioritize family and community over over punctuality. Okay, that's fine. Probably shows in their economy, though. Um, and so, again, uh, the prosperity and the health that we enjoy in Australia, which is which we want all Indigenous Australians to enjoy, which is what we mean by closing the gap, means that Indigenous Australians need to be encouraged to really uh, want to integrate into mainstream Australian culture. And that doesn't mean losing all of their identity as Indigenous Australian. It doesn't mean that at all, any more than Greeks have to lose their Greek identity or Italians their Italian identity. But it does just state the fact that the prosperity and the health that we enjoy uh, is a product of a particular culture. And unless you can thrive in that culture, you will not be able to enjoy the benefits uh, of that culture. And closing the gap is an invitation to Indigenous Australians to enjoy those benefits. But we've got to actually say what it is. And it is, of course, a program of integration, which is why anything that discourages integration or, or leads Indigenous Australians to think of mainstream culture as sort of hateful or colonialist or racist or white is doing a terrible disservice to Indigenous Australians. And, and I do actually think that the voice to parliament will over time do that because I think that the voice to, par to parliament will become very soon nothing more than a perpetual demand for a treaty of a sovereign nationhood of Indigenous Australia on this continent. And that's all actually made quite clear in the documents that they themselves have, have published for Australians to read. Well, if indeed the purpose of the voice to parliament was to improve the lot of Indigenous people, to bring them out of, you know, to close the gap, as you say, reconciliation, as we once talked about it, if that was the aim, then surely we, that we must expect there will be a point when we will accomplish that aim, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, 500 years, I don't care, but there, we, we expect an end point to that. But by putting this in the constitution, it seems to me, there will be no end point. You, you, you will always be separate, you will always be different, and you will always be treated a different way. Uh, absolutely, and that is incredibly uh, that will prove to be more and more divisive over time. You're absolutely right. Uh, if the point of this voice to parliament is purely as a mechanism, it's a mechanism to close the gap, then there really is, then it's potentially quite counterproductive to enshrine it in the constitution because then presumably once the gap is closed, you've got this additional uh, arm of the legislature that can't really be gotten rid of, except again through another referendum, which you know, may or may not succeed. It, it just seems unnecessary to bring it to a referendum. Um, but, but, you know, uh, that is what Australians are being asked to do. And, and I actually think that 
the voice to parliament. In fact, I don't think it, I know it, because again, the Uluru Statement from the Heart tells us this. The website for the Uluru Statement from the Heart makes this very, very clear, that the culmination of this project, which is made up of truth-telling, voice, and finally, treaty. The culmination of all of this is a treaty. And the point of getting the voice constitutionally enshrined is that once it basically falls into the habit of perpetually just calling for a treaty, the legislature uh, won't be able to dissolve it. And so you're going to have this perpetual voice calling for two Australias, which will be almost impossible to dissolve unless another referendum is called to do it. And again, we've got to be very clear here that this is not just a question of a Trojan horse coming into Australia through this voice. It's a Trojan horse and the people bringing it in are actually telling us what's in the horse. Mm. And it's very important that like, when you read the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is what recommends the voice uh, to Australia. It says that, you know, the, the, the culmination of everything that it wants to do is what it calls a Makarata, uh, a Makarata Commission. And when you go to the website of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, there's a drop down which says Makarata. You can read it. This is the word in the Uluru Statement. And what does it defines Makarata for us? It says Makarata is another word for treaty or agreement making. It is the culmination of our agenda. I repeat that the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is what is um, pushing this voice to Parliament, tells us all that a treaty is the culmination of our agenda. This is not some conspiracy theory, or if it is, it's an open conspiracy. Now, what kind of treaty are we talking about, Nick? Well, it's not all that clear. But again, if you go to the website, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, again, they say the quiet bit out loud. So no one, could, you know, no one can say that they're, they're being secretive. And it says here, again, um, uh, you know, another page from the website here, it says, there is a potential for two sovereignties to coexist in which both Western and Indigenous values and identities are protected. Two sovereignties, Nick. Now, in political science, there is only one kind of entity that has sovereignty, a state. Yeah. Yep. A state. And a sovereign state, by definition, is a political entity that cannot be controlled by anything outside it. They're basically saying that the culmination of this agenda is a treaty and what they want out of this treaty is sovereignty. And there's no secrecy, as you say. I mean, the Prime Minister has said openly that, that he accepts the Uluru Statement's demands in full. So there it is on the table. Uh, but you know, one thing that deeply upset me very early on in this debate, you'll remember... Uh, the Prime Minister met Shakira O'Neill, who's an American basketball player, and suggested that he might be a fine ambassador for The Voice. And I thought to myself, why? I mean, this, this is a guy who's been to Australia a few times to record some quite amusing online gambling ads. But apart from that, I think his connection with Australia is very thin. So why would he be considered as an ambassador? It comes down to one thing, the colour of his skin. This whole thing just comes down to black versus white. And I don't know if you caught the comedian Vince Sorrenti of Italian extraction, very funny man, on Andrew Bolt's show last week. He said uh, when he was a kid, he was a wog and that was a problem. 
Now he's an old white male, and that's a problem too. I just think we have to kick back against this, Stephen. Absolutely. Uh, this is just the beginning of what is going to become a very nasty uh, and divisive trend in Australian discourse. Uh, it's only going to get worse if this voice succeeds uh, at referendum. I think it's well to point out that, you know, over the last 30 years, we have had We've had Mabo uh, and about 43% of Australia's landmass is now under native title. We've had the national apology in 2008, I believe it was. Again, every year there is nearly $40 billion uh, set aside uh, to alleviate Indigenous disadvantage. Uh, our school curricula at all levels is infused uh, with, uh, with uh, Indigenous issues. Um, which generally don't paint Australia in a very good light. At every, every event you go to nowadays, uh, you're, you, you uh, have to sit through a welcome to country or something like that. It is not like Australians haven't been trying over the last 30 years. And yet, what do we get? Well, every year now, the debate on whether we should change the date or abolish Australia Day gets ever more acrimonious. Every year we are still told you must pay the rent. Every year we are still told you are standing on stolen land. Every year we are still told no pride in genocide. It's like the more that is done, the more acrimonious the debate gets. And I think that what we're learning is that this attempt to try to achieve reconciliation will only ever lead to increasing acrimony unless there is a reciprocated movement equally as strong as the reconciliation movement about forgiveness. And until there is a, a movement among Indigenous Australians that is equally strong as the reconciliation movement, but is a forgiveness movement, we will only ever have increasing acrimony in this country. And this voice will just inflame it because it'll just be treaty, 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 treaty. And once the treaty comes, that will not be the end of it, because then there'll be disputes over how much land, how much money should be uh, awarded to this sovereign state, uh, all sorts of other things as well. That word forgiveness, I'm glad you brought it up. I've been thinking a lot about this myself. This is a, 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 a key Christian virtue, if not the key Christian virtue, when you think of the importance of the suffering on the cross and the redemption. Forgiveness. This is the way we normally deal with, it, with problems, right? We, we, yes. we, have, we, we have a disagreement. We have maybe a different memory about what happened, you know, whether it's something our neighbour did, or we think he did, or his dog did in our garden or whatever. The, the only way to, to deal with this peacefully is to say, well, okay, if I did you wrong, I apologise. And if I thought you did something wrong, I forgive you that. It's a, it's a sort of, I didn't put that very well, but it's very, very different from the culture you see in many other parts of the world where people nurse yes. and indeed, you know, buff up historical grievances. You know, your grandfather took my grandfather's olive grove so we can never be reconciled. It seems to me we have to know, as a, as a culture that's been, been very successful and has been built on that Christian foundation of forgiveness, 
we need, we need to know how to deal with historical grievances and the way we're going about this one can only end in a, a never ending conflict between two groups of people. Absolutely, Nick. And, and one thing I, I pointed out in that ABC article, and again, from a Christian point of view, we have to be very careful about this, that by definition, historical grievances are the kinds of injustices that are so great that they can never be made right in this life. There is no amount of money that you can give to someone uh, to make up for murder. Uh, there is no amount of money you can give to someone that can make up for being deprived of a mother or a father. You, you just can't do it. So there's really no amount of reparation, no amount of land that can actually ever make up for what many Indigenous Australians say was taken from them. And so what that means is every gesture of goodwill, every dollar, every piece of land that is awarded over, none of that will actually make up for the harms done in the past. They, they can't. And so what you're going to wind up with is one side, the non-Indigenous Australia, constantly trying to make up and give reparations, whether it's in money, whether it's in land, whether it's, in re rec whether it's recognition, uh, to, to Indigenous Australians for something that cannot actually be um, made whole in that way. And, and consequently, what you're going to have then is constant continual calls from spokespeople for Indigenous Australians uh, for more, 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 more. And what you have there is a recipe for continued conflict and quite frankly, hatred. And the only way to really cut through that is through forgiveness. That is the only way. And until that forgiveness is offered, you will only ever have acrimony. And, and look, I, I actually think, Nick, and this is, again, I think Christians especially need to heed this. I, and this is going to sound a bit heretical, Nick, but I actually think we need to stop talking about reconciliation altogether. I don't think, like you said, reconciliation it makes a lot of sense between individuals or small mm. groups. You can sort of understand when they're reconciled, what it looks like. But what does it mean to reconcile Indigenous Australians who themselves are not united, who are divided tribally, who don't have a single voice, and the voice to Parliament will not be recognised as their single voice because one tribe doesn't, uh, doesn't consider another tribe to be representative of it. Uh, reconciliation between that, so, between Indigenous Australia and non-Indigenous Australia, which is made up of people who only came here in the last generation, who have nothing to do with what happened in the past, and, and, and then other, other people with different belief systems uh, from all sorts of different walks of life who have different views on reconciliation. I mean, what does it mean for those two groups to be reconciled? It's almost an impossible thing to describe. And as long as it's an impossible thing to describe what that looks like, it'll never be achieved because even if it was achieved, we wouldn't know it. But it's just such a vague concept when applied to the national level that it has proven over the last 30 years to produce nothing but division. And when you keep saying to people, as Archbishop Kanishka, Archbishop of Sydney, Anglican Kanishka Raphael has said that reconciliation is a long way off. When you keep saying that to people, what some people will hear is we are not reconciled. Um, we are not friends. We are an enmity. We are enemies. And consequently, what do you see? You see posters saying pay the rent. No pride in genocide, living on stolen land, 
Australia has a black history and th things that aren't conducive to reconciliation, things that are conducive to conflict and warfare. We need to really stop talking about reconciliation and find another word. I think a, a word like fellowship is a good one, but we, we basically need to move past reconciliation. Um, it's had its day. It's no longer useful. Thank you, Stephen. I don't often get the chance to quote from the Lord's Prayer, but I'll do that today. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, I think sums up much of what you just said. Also, I don't often get the chance to uh, refer people to the ABC website. Uh, I wish I could do it more, by the way. I wish that there was more on there that was worth pointing people towards, but your article on this certainly is. I think if, if you Google, as I did this afternoon, Stephen Chavora, The Voice, the ABC, you'll probably find it. Uh, but look, thank you very much for joining us on this, Stephen. I respect your position very much. I respect the way you argue your position with clarity and courage. And I look forward to welcoming you back on the battleground soon. I look forward to that, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to my distinguished guests and thank you to Charlie and the multitasking miracle workers here at ADH TV and to Susan and the team at the Menzies Research Centre. Most of all, thank you for watching. See you next week.